Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. A reminder that next Thursday, April 25th, from 6 to 8 at Whiskey 6 in Gross Point, we are going to host a Smart Politics Happy Hour. Nancy Derringer from Deadline Detroit and Sandra Swoboda of Great Lakes Now are going to join me as you lead the conversation about the issues that matter to you most. Tell us what's on your mind in advance of us going up to Mackinac Island for the Mackinac Policy Conference at the end of May. We're going to take your concerns to elected officials and policymakers at that conference. Again, mark your calendar, April 25th at Whiskey 6, 6 to 8 p.m. All right. Uh, During the presidency of Barack Obama, there was perhaps no one closer to him as an advisor than Valerie Jarrett. She was the president's longest serving aide and had an inside view to the administration's work on health care, on racial equality, and same-sex marriage. And now she's senior advisor to the Obama Foundation. It's a long way from her early days in Chicago, working for legendary Mayor Richard Daley, or attending law school right here at the University of Michigan. In her new book, Finding My Voice, My Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward, she details how she became such a close confidant of the Obama family and President Obama himself. She's going to give a talk about her book, her life, and her career on Monday night in Ann Arbor at the Michigan Theater. Valerie Jarrett, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much, Stephen. I am looking forward to being back in Ann Arbor, where I spent three amazing years. Yeah, yeah, that's really that's a really cool call, uh, homecoming. Uh, of course, I want to talk about your book and your visit here and uh, your career, but we had such big news yesterday in Washington around the White House, the current White House, the current occupant of the White House, that I really want to get your reaction to what we saw yesterday, this release of the Mueller report, uh, and what it says about uh, the Obama administration's potential involvement in uh, Russian influence in the 2016 election. Um, You were working at the White House at that time. Describe what you saw concerning Russia and any election interference. Well, we did have some concerns, and it's why President Obama asked Leader Mitch McConnell in the Senate to join him to encourage the secretaries of state around the country to be vigilant, because the most important thing, of course, is to protect the integrity of our elections. It's the foundation of our democracy. Uh, So we did certainly try to be vigilant, uh, and as we saw yesterday, from the report, and as we've been hearing for a while, Russian clearly did try to interfere. Um, numerous people have been indicted and convicted in connection with that. And I think the American people, in a very bipartisan way, want as much information as possible to ensure that it never happens again. Mm. Uh, so there's also some really interesting uh, narrative in this report about how things have been working in the current West Wing between the president and some of his advisors. Uh, there, there is this uh, uh, unwinding of the incidents in which perhaps the president asked his aides to do something or to say something, and they thought better of it. They said, you know what, I'm not going to go do that because I'm concerned about the legality of it. I really wonder what your reaction is to that kind of dynamic in the West Wing. You served in the president's inner circle for uh, for, for eight years. Is that normally the way things work in the West Wing? Uh, no, not at all. <laughs> and I can say to you, after eight years of serving President Obama, there wasn't a single 
time, he asked me to do something I was uncomfortable doing. From the very beginning, he directed us all to color well within the lines. And the fact that after eight years, he did not have a single scandal is something that was extraordinarily important to him and to us all. Uh, I think having a strong moral compass and making sure that you keep focused on what's in the best interest of the American people is what one should expect from one's president. Hmm. Uh, let's talk about your book, which uh, I got to read this week, and and I really enjoyed uh, the oh, story you, that you David. tell and and how you sort of um, weave the, the the really personal part of the narrative into uh, the bigger stories that uh, that your life has has been a part of. But I want to start um, on a specific page, uh, page thirty eight, uh, where you list. Uh, a, a list of things that you put together uh, as life goals. Uh, and I want to I share them with the listeners and then have you talk about how you started with that list and uh, how you departed from it. Um, so first was graduate from Stanford. Second was graduate from Michigan. Uh, third was discover my career passion. Fourth, fall in love and marry. Fifth, have a baby. And sixth, be a fulfilled satisfied and happy wife and working mom. Uh, That's such an earnest list. And I think uh, lots of us can relate to to having made lists like that. Talk about when you made that list and then sort of where life took you. Well, it was an ambitious plan. And I did absolutely finish uh, law school. Well, finish college, finish law school. Uh, fell in love, uh, got married, had a baby, uh, and had a prestigious career practicing law. And one day, I begin the book by describing one day sitting in my fancy office in a big high-rise in Chicago, looking out at Lake Michigan and crying. And I realized that that list had not panned out the way I thought it would. My marriage was crumbling. I was unhappy in the law firm. I was uh, frustrated with now uh, the prospects of being a single mother, something I had never, ever thought would happen to me. And I had to figure out, what am I going to do about that? And I had a good friend who worked in local government, and he said, why don't you think about joining local government? You'll feel a part of something bigger than yourself. And I took a leap of faith and joined the administration then of Harold Washington, the mayor of Chicago, and never look back. I went into my little cubicle with a window facing the alley, and I knew I was where I belonged. Hmm. Uh, you you worked for Harold Washington, and then later for Richard M. Daly. Uh, talk about how those those early experiences in local government kind of shaped uh, the outlook that you have about the role of government, the power of government, and the the, the huge responsibility that people who are elected to serve or even appointed to serve uh, have uh, to, to, to sort of uphold uh, these really important tenets of, of our democracy? It's such a good question because uh, it had an enormous impact on me. I think one of the advantages of local government is because the constituents that you are there to serve are proximate. They're right in your face. You go to the grocery store, you take your daughter for a walk in the park, you go to the dry cleaners, wherever you go, people are there 24-7, and that's as it should be, because it teaches you to be a public servant, which means in service of the public. I also learned to listen. I went to countless community meetings with the purpose of trying to find out what do you want us to do to improve your lives, and then government is there as a tool to do so. It also is there to leverage 
resources from the private sector because government can't solve all of our problems alone. And I think those early experiences uh, in local government helped me and the White House always remember why we were there, and that is in service of the American people, and to create a mechanism where we could get feedback on a regular basis so that we weren't making policy decisions in a vacuum. President Obama wanted to make informed decisions, informed by people who were most directly impacted. The other thing I learned in local government is that, look, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. If you can make incremental change that affects people's lives in a positive way, then do so. Uh, when we did pass the Affordable Care Act, there were people on both sides who thought we had, didn't have it just right. Some people wanted a public option. Some people didn't want us to do anything at all. And we moved forward with what we could get the votes to do. And was it perfect? No. Do 20 million people today have health care that never had it before? Or, or likely didn't have it before? Absolutely. Uh, one in two Americans are now covered by uh, preventing insurance companies from discriminating against them if they have a pre-existing condition. And so you, you do learn to compromise. You do learn to look through the perspective of um, the person on the other side of the table so that you can hear them out and hopefully then uh, reach a consensus that's progress. Mm. And so all of that I learned at the local level. Uh, my guest is Valerie Jarrett. She was senior advisor to President Barack Obama. She is the author of the new book, Finding My Voice, and she will be in town Monday at 7 p.m. to give a talk at the Michigan Theater in Ann Arbor. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what you think now about the Obama years, uh, especially in light of the things that we're learning just yesterday, in fact, about the Trump years, uh, the, the early Trump years and this uh, this investigation that has gone on into the role that the president and those around him may have played in Russian interference in the 2016 election. Of course, the Mueller report was was uh, released yesterday in a redacted form, uh, but we still learned a lot, I think, about what went on in the White House uh, during those during those years. Uh, if you want to give us a call, 313-577-1019. Tell us what you think of all that. Uh, if you have a question for Valerie Jarrett about President Obama or the Obama years in the White House, uh, that would be good, too. Uh, you can also go to the, the WDET Facebook page uh, and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit today, uh, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Valerie, before I get to this this moment uh, that you describe in the book, when you meet Michelle Obama, who is then Michelle Robinson, I want to talk about uh, the, the, the time you spend in the book talking about growing up um, and uh, both the opportunities that you had and some of the barriers that, uh, that stood in your way. Um, it, it's, it's a really, I think for African-Americans, uh, a pretty familiar tale, but I think the way that you describe it um, uh, carries a kind of dignity and purpose that, that really stands out. Well, I think our purpose was to try to make sure that we represented the interests of our country uh, to the best of our ability, I think, because... I'm so sorry, my dog's in the background. That's okay. <laughs> because I think because President Obama was the first African-American president, it was more important than ever that he uh, conduct himself in a way where he realized that children were watching, that he had to be a role model, and that he had to make some very tough decisions 
with um, and there was a lot in that inevitably there was a backlash that came along with that and he was comfortable uh, owning that position and uh, as I said earlier there isn't a single day that I was not proud to serve in his administration and I think we tried to comport ourselves in a way where everyone could be proud. Hmm. Uh, and when you describe sort of growing up and some of the challenges that uh, that you faced, uh, talk about how that powered some of the decisions that you made later in life to, to get into public service, uh, to fight as hard as you did for that, that kind of dignity. Well, look, I was... Um my parents grew up during the Jim Crow era. My mom in Washington, in Chicago, my dad in Washington, D.C. And they had taught me at a very early age that, look, don't expect life to necessarily be fair, but you're going to have to work twice as hard. And if you do, then with a little bit of luck, uh, you might achieve your goals. And I also then, as we mentioned, became the single mom. And I used to think, my gosh, this is so hard for me, but I have everything going for me. I had resources to have great child care. I had parents who were right there available to me. And I, I really began to think, well, what about those working families who don't have what I have? And, and is government doing everything it should do for them? And the work that I did in the neighborhoods in Chicago, redeveloping public housing, was so fulfilling to me because my grandfather had been chairman of the Chicago Housing Authority and had wanted to build housing that blended into the urban fabric and instead, Mayor Richard J. Daley named the largest public housing development in the world, Robert Taylor Homes, after him. Mm-hmm. And it was the opposite of what he wanted to do. And yet I, get, I had the opportunity to see it come down and help rebuild mixed-income communities. And so I think my parents gave me fundamental values and a sense of a work ethic and a commitment that you believe that to those who much is given, much is expected. And they never said you have to do it this way or that way, but they did say prioritize excellence and have a moral compass pointed towards true north. And so I think both my personal upbringing and the life experiences that I have had prepared me to be in the role that I was in in the White House uh, serving President Obama, to be a champion for people who didn't have a seat at the table, who didn't have a voice, um, whose interests weren't being represented. And that's that's where my fulfillment, professional fulfillment came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the book, you describe uh, this very pivotal moment in your career when you decide to hire uh, Michelle Obama, who's then Michelle Robinson, and how that leads you to this eventual very close relationship with both her and Barack Obama. Yes, Stevens, that's a pretty good story. I was working for Mayor Daley. He promoted me to deputy chief of staff. And I was sent Michelle, Michelle Robinson's resume, and it said, brilliant young woman, interested in public service, doesn't want to be at a big law firm, which was music to my ears, <laughs> since I had not enjoyed that either. And I invited her in for an interview, and she knocked me over. She was so impressive at such a young age, and offered her a job on the spot, even though I didn't have actually any authority to offer her the job. Uh, and wisely, she demurred. And I was talking to her a few days later, and I said, well, what about the job? And she said well, my fiancé doesn't think it's such a good idea. And I said, well, who's your fiancé, and why do we care what he thinks? And she laughed and said, well, his name is Barack Obama, and he started his career as a community organizer in Chicago, and he's concerned about me going from a big law firm right into the fire, at least. I mean, I practiced law for the city for four years before going to the mayor's office, and she said she didn't have that benefit. And so she said, well, 
we we want we're intrigued enough. So would you have dinner with us and let's talk about it? Well, that was an unusual request, right? I'm trying to give her a job offer, and she says, "Would you have dinner with my fiance?" But I was um, I wanted her desperately, and I would have done just about anything to land her. And so I went to dinner, and boy, am I glad I did. Hmm. Um, talk about how that relationship develops uh, over over time. I mean, you come into uh, the the White House in in 2009 already one of the closest uh, people to the president and and to his family. How do you go from that first hire to that uh, deeply uh, deeply intimate kind of relationship with the two of them? Well, we met in the summer of 1991. She did say yes and come and join me in the mayor's office, and we worked there and then also in the Department of Planning and Development together. And uh, I was involved in uh, each of his campaigns. We lived in the same neighborhood. Uh, we raised our children and became very, very close friends. And over the course of time, we went through what most people do in relationships, which is, you know, the ups and downs of life. I was at their wedding. I remember when their children were born. They were a big part of my daughter's life. Uh, we hung out together on weekends, had meals together, did what friends do, and over, you know, a couple of decades, you develop a really close relationship if you, if it sticks. And ours, fortunately, did stick. Hmm. And so, by the time it became time to go to the White House after his election, it did seem perfectly natural that I would go with him. And delighted that I did. Best decision I've ever made. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, we're going to take a quick Extraordinary break. Extraordinary eight years. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break and we come back. We're going to continue our conversation with Valerie Jarrett. Also, call in for a chance to win tickets to her talk on Monday in Ann Arbor at the Michigan Theater. To win those tickets, all you have to do is give us a call, 313-577-1019. We have three pairs to give away. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. My guest is Valerie Jarrett. She is a former senior advisor to President Barack Obama, now an advisor to the Obama Foundation. She is author of the new book, Finding My Voice, My Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward. She is going to be at the Michigan Theater in Ann Arbor at 7 p.m. to give a talk about her book, her life, and her career. If you want tickets to that event, we have three pairs. Uh, you can give a call, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. And you probably ought to hurry because I can see on the lines here a lot of people already lining up to get those uh, those tickets. Uh, you can also give us a call and join the conversation with Valerie Jarrett about her time in the Obama White House, her life, and her career. Uh, you can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, uh, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Valerie, I want to go back to I want to go back to the book uh, and another another passage that really jumped out at me 
Um, this is a, a, a description uh, by you of a conversation you had with President Obama during the campaign, during that first campaign, um, and you're on the plane with him. You're telling him this story about an African-American man who shows up uh, for an event, and he, he shows up uh, because uh, a friend of his who is white told him to. Uh, talk about that moment and why it was so pivotal in the in your mind in this in this campaign well it's what the campaign was all about it was about people whose paths would not normally cross and the young woman was from florida like a 20 something year old woman who had a mother who'd been um, sick with cancer and hadn't had enough money to pay for the insurance and the, the young woman had tried to when she was actually a girl when she was eight years old she told her mom that she wanted sandwiches made of you know ketchup or mustard uh with bread so that it would be less expensive. And so she's trying to figure out how to help her mother afford health care. And she heard about President Obama and that his mother had died from cancer. And she thought, well, this is a guy who's going to go to bat for people like my mom. So she leaves her life in Florida, moves to South Carolina, and is a field organizer for the campaign and built a relationship with this older black guy. And he showed up not to hear Valerie Jarrett, the senior uh, advisor from the Obama campaign, he showed up because of Ashley. Hmm. And President Obama used that story when he spoke uh, at Ebenezer Baptist Church on Martin Luther King's birthday as a symbol of what we should be doing as a country, which is to figure out how we are inextricably linked together, and that we should be building relationships outside of our comfort zone and seeing what we have in common as opposed to focusing on our differences. And she's a she's a remarkable young woman who then joined me in the White House, and uh, I'm just so proud that she was willing to take this chance with her life and believe that she could make a difference too. Hmm. That it didn't all have to come from the president. That she on the ground could build relationships that encourage people to vote for someone she believed in. Hmm. And it was just a magical moment, and I'll always treasure it. So, so, so what jumps out at me about that story in the book is that exactly what you say. This is this is the, the context and the power, I guess, behind that initial campaign uh, uh, for president. And then, of course, he gets elected, and the challenge of governing crops up, and things look, I guess— less optimistic at times uh, in those early days uh, when when opposition forms and uh, when people start to really think about the policy imperatives that the White House is adopting. Can you talk about those, those early fights in uh, the White House for things like the Affordable Care Act and how th- that maybe changed some of that unbridled optimism that, that he made the center of that uh, initial campaign? Well, I think uh, your listeners will remember that when President Obama took office, we were in the middle of the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, our banks were in a free fall. The automobile industry that's so important to Detroit was on the verge of collapse. Uh, we had two wars going on. Osama bin Laden was at large. Uh, we had a dependence on foreign oil that was affecting not only our economy, but national security. We had a big a hunk of stuff on our plate. And we were trying to move forward an affirmative agenda, stabilizing the economy, but also trying what seven presidents before President Obama had been unable to do, and that is to pass reforms to our health insurance. Uh, 
policies here in the United States. And as we later learned, uh, that the Republicans made up their mind that they were just going to say no to everything, and that their first priority, notwithstanding everything I just said, Steve, Mm -hmm. was to make Barack Obama a one-term president. And normally, when we're in crisis here in our country, we pull together. That's one of the strengths of our democracy. It's one of the reasons why we've always been the beacon of hope around the world, is, is that we do rally and pull together. And their decision to simply say no to everything was astonishing to me. If you think about the Affordable Care Act, we modeled it after the program that had been become the law in Massachusetts mm-hmm. that Governor Romney, Republican governor, had supported. And so we thought, well, this is something that will get Republican votes. We made 200 amendments to the plan, all trying to get it to be bipartisan, because President Obama believed that once you're elected president, you're not elected just to represent the people in your base. You're, rep- you're representing the entire country. And so he wanted to get bipartisan support for this program that could affect positively so many lives. But it's a big change. And we were not able to do that. And so there was one disappointment after another at their unwillingness to engage with us. And I think they put their short-term political interests ahead of what was good for the country. But the optimism that President Obama felt and still feels comes not from Congress, but from the American people who... As I have traveled this country, um, had the privilege of traveling this country over the last 12 years, I've seen so many just ordinary people out there doing extraordinary things. Mm. And uh, the people like Ashley, giving up her life and moving to South Carolina, or people in their community volunteering at a boys' club or girls' club and, and helping young mentor young students. I mean, there's so many incredible things happening around our country, that that gives me reason to still be optimistic. Hmm. Uh, do, you, do you remember times in the White House that uh, that all of this tension from outside caused dissension inside? Do you remember times when uh, there were arguments about how to how to move forward on some of these these issues that uh, that Republicans were somewhat successful in getting Americans uh, worked up about and and inciting a lot of skepticism over? Well, the Affordable Care Act would probably be the, the largest one where there were people who were inside who were saying to President Obama, I'm not sure this is doable. Hmm. You, you know, you came in with a great popularity support from the American people and your poll numbers are suffering. And President Obama said, what's the point of being here if we're not going to do big and bold things? And Political capital is there so we can use it for a good purpose. And he did encourage debate amongst ourselves, and he he wanted to make sure that he made the most informed decisions possible. And so he he didn't care where the idea came from. It could be the junior most person in the room. He wanted them to speak up and push back and, and give all the reasons we shouldn't do something so that when he decided to go forward, it was an informed decision. Hmm. Uh, and so there's this tension when people, when you're trying to do something that's unpopular, but you know it's the right thing to do in the long run. And as we see today, now the Affordable Care Act is supported by the majority of the American people. And so you have to be willing to take some heat and pressure in the short term, knowing that in the long term, it is in our best interest. Mm-hmm. 
again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones if you want to talk with Valerie Jarrett, former senior advisor to President Barack Obama. I want to congratulate Sherry, Gilbert, and Dan, who were the callers who got those tickets, uh, pairs of tickets, three pairs of tickets to Valerie Jarrett's appearance Monday, April 22nd at 7 p.m. at the Michigan Theater in Ann Arbor. I'm sure they will have a great time at that event. Uh, uh, Tickets are still, of course, available to it if you want to buy them, but we are out of the free tickets that we had. Uh, You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Gene in Detroit. Gene. Welcome to Detroit today. Uh, good morning, Stephen. Hey, Gene. I uh, just wanted to ask Ms. Jarrett what uh, she thinks President uh, Obama thinks about the fact that most of the money that he allocated for the hardest hit fund to keep people in their homes was used for demolition. Gene, hmm. uh, that's a great question. Uh, Valerie Jarrett, I'm not sure if you know that, that the hardest hit funds. Uh, here in the state of Michigan, and in particular in Detroit, uh, there was a late amendment uh, to, to, to that uh, law and that spending that allowed cities that had huge problems with blight to use that money for demolition instead of trying to keep people in their homes. Uh, that that has fueled almost all of the demolition here in Detroit for a really long time. I, I, I wonder what, uh, as Gene does, what the president would think about uh, that effort and, and whether that was maybe not the intent of, uh, of the hardest hit fund in the first place. Well, you're right. The intent was to enable people to stay in their homes. And I wasn't aware that it was being used for demolition. I'm sure that there was a sense that if you demolish abandoned buildings, then it actually cleared the way for more development, which which helps to stabilize neighborhoods. Uh, but I I wasn't aware that it was being used for demolition, so I'm sorry I can't add more yeah. to it than that. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea in some cities like Detroit was that you had so much blight. I mean, we had 70,000, more than 70,000 abandoned homes at that time, and there was not money to get rid of them. And you're right, it was, uh, it was an idea to try to stabilize uh, neighborhoods that were you know, kind of on the brink of, of falling into absolute destitution. Um, uh, and and it, was, it was different from that original, uh, that original purpose. Uh, again, Gene, thanks very much for the call and the questions. Let's go to Valerie in Holly. Valerie, what's on your mind? Okay, uh, this is for Miss Jarrett, my namesake. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yes, hello, Valerie. Yes, how are you? You know, as I'm great. Uh, as black people, we seem to think criticizing our own means we do not like that person. And as we know, there are no perfect people. Is there one moment while you were serving with the president that you wish he had come out a little stronger to shut down the criticism? Oh, Republicans. Hmm. Hmm. Valerie, uh, thanks very much for the call and the question. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it's interesting you'd ask that question because somebody asked me recently. You all might remember uh, when President Obama addressed his first joint address to Congress. Uh, Joe Wilson, Representative Joe Wilson, sure. screamed out, "You lie!" Never happened before at a State of the Union. Totally disrespectful. 
And people say, well, why didn't he say something back? And I think it takes a lot more strength to resist the temptation to lash out than it does to be impulsive. And at at that time, he was giving a speech about the Affordable Care Act, and he knew if he paused and reacted to Joe Wilson, then that would have been the center of the story the next day, not the reasons why he was trying to push forward the Affordable Care Act. And one of uh, President Obama's strengths is his ability to not get caught up in... um, in a personal attacks against him, because he, this was never about him. This was about you. And so he put himself and his, how he felt, second. And he didn't think that lashing out towards the Republicans was going to make them any more productive. Uh, and he did what his wife said we always do, which is when they go low, we go high. And he tried to comport himself in a way where he set a tone for the country of civility and decency and and goodness. And I actually think that's a strength. Hmm. And it's harder to do that when you're under attack. You find out what people are made of when <laughs> when they are under attack. And do they fall into the gutter or do they rise and, and rise above it? And I think we need presidents that rise above it, that are not so thin-skinned that they respond to attacks when they are directed at them, particularly if responding wasn't going to make it any better. Now, I will say this. Uh, I do think early on, particularly, we were busy trying to get the story right, and we were busy trying to create an environment where the American people could see that we were trying to be bipartisan, that we were working and reaching out to the Republicans. Mm. And it was important to get caught trying, because, because those Republicans represent a big chunk of our country. And he wasn't president of his base. He was president of the country. And you, you, by, you know, by our Constitution, you have to work with Congress in order to pass legislation sure. that's going to be the most sustainable. And so that's what he tried to do. Um, so, no, I don't regret that he, he maintained that civility throughout. So, so I, I really wonder then what you make of what we see now out of the White House and the current president, um, not just in contrast as a substantive matter, but also in the ability to do that. I mean, I really wonder if uh, President Obama had taken to uh, aggressive pushbacks to his critics or even attacking his critics, if it would have been received quite the way that uh, President Trump's uh, constant indulgence of that kind of tactic has been. I mean, there, you know, the difference between them in terms of style is important, but also in terms of race. Would, would the nation have embraced the idea of a black president behaving the way that Donald Trump does right now? In a word, no. <laughs> of course not. Of course not. You look, he was attacked for wearing a tan suit. Right. My goodness, for putting his foot on the desk. There's just no comparison to what we're seeing today, none whatsoever. And that's got to be frustrating, right, for you. uh, Well, it's profoundly disappointing because we need the checks and balances. I mean, that's, again, back to our Constitution. And I do wonder why the Republicans in Congress, who were so quick to criticize President Obama over nothing, um, why they are muted in the current climate. Why don't they feel empowered to stand up for what they know is right? 
why do they have a double standard? I asked them that question. Okay, Valerie Jarrett, former senior advisor to President Barack Obama, now advisor to the Obama Foundation. She will be at the Michigan Theater in Ann Arbor at 7 p.m. on Monday. Valerie, it was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Thank you. Mm -hmm. Such a pleasure, Stephen. And thank you for uh, talking about my program. I'm looking forward to being in Ann Arbor, and I'm so delighted that you were offering tickets to your callers. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Sherry, yeah, uh, uh, Sherry... Gilbert and Dan will be there with you. <laughs> I'll look for them. Yeah. <laughs> bye right. bye now. Up next, we're going to take a closer look at the Mueller report with law professor at University of Michigan and former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, Barb McQuaid. Stay with us on Detroit Today. We'll be right back.